Let's go ahead and begin with a little word of prayer, and then we'll get into what we're going to be talking about. Dear Father in heaven, once again, we thank you that we're able to be here. Thank you for the opportunity for us to share ideas and study together and learn ways in which we can be more effective in doing the greatest work that can ever be done, that is seeking souls for the kingdom. So we ask your blessing upon our time together. Together, give us wisdom and understanding, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> this morning we're going to be talking about the evangelism cycle, a practical way of organizing outreach and evangelism in your local church. Now, I'm sure all of us are connected with some kind of a local Adventist church. What can we do in a practical way to really make a difference? Those are some of the things we're going to look at. Now, you've probably heard this statement before. It's the foundation of all evangelism. It's from Ministry of Healing, page 143. It says, Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. How many methods, according to this quote, will give true success in evangelism? There's only one. And whose method is that? It's Christ's method. So if we can figure out what Christ's method of evangelism is, and if we would do that, we would have true success in reaching the people. How did Jesus go about his ministry? The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them. He ministered to their needs, and he won their confidence. Then he bade them follow me. So if we take Christ's method and we put it together on a chart, there are three main areas that we want to think about. What did Jesus do? He mingled with people. He made friends. He won their confidence. How did Jesus often win their confidence? What did he do? Well, he met their needs. He fed 5,000 people. But what was it that he did more than any other? He ministered to their physical needs. In other words, he provided healing. We spoke about medical ministry. That's following Christ's method to win people's confidence. And once he won their confidence, then he was able to share the word. Come and follow me, Jesus would say. Now, out of these three, making friends, winning people's confidence, and sharing the word, where do you think we as Adventists typically are the strongest out of these three areas? Making friends, winning confidence, or sharing the word? What do you think? Where are we the strongest? Sharing the word. Okay, well, you answered right. I've had an opportunity to travel all over the place and do the same presentation, always ask the same question here, and we always get the same response, sharing the word. How important is it for us to effectively share the word? How important is that? That's very important. Now, how do you think we as Adventists share the word? What are some of the things we do or some of the things that we have to help us effectively share the word? What are some of the resources that we make available? All right, we have all kinds of books. So there's literature outreach. What else do we do in sharing the word? Oh, we've got television, we've got radio, we've got media, we've got the internet. What else do we do? An evangelistic series, okay? Is that an effective means of sharing the word? An evangelistic series? I'll be sharing with you later on this afternoon some very powerful quotes with reference to public evangelism and its significance and its importance. We'll, we'll get to that later on. So we have our evangelistic meetings. What about one-on-one, -on -one sharing the word? What do we have available? Bible studies, okay? We can all be involved in Bible studies. Are there resources available to help us in our Bible studies? Yes, there are. All kinds of Bible studies and resources. And I think that's good, and we want to keep working towards being as effective as we can in sharing the Word. There is power in the preaching of the Word. My wife had a co-worker. She's a nurse, 
and there was somebody that she was working with who showed an interest in spiritual things, but uh, she was very skeptical. She would be the kind that would ask questions like, <clears throat> well, if God's so big and so powerful, if he's all-powerful, is it possible for God to create a rock that is so big that he can't pick it up? Have you heard that kind of reasoning before? Or where did God come from if he made everything? Who made God? This is kind of her thinking. Anyway, we were going to have a Bible study with her. My wife had set it all up, so we got together and we started doing the Bible study, and she came up with all of these kinds of questions. It was almost frustrating. And so anyway, in our Bible study, we were looking at the passage of Scripture where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And we read the story how that Moses was leading the sheep in the wilderness, and he saw this strange sight, a bush that was burning, that was not being consumed. And Moses went over to the bush, and God spoke to Moses and said, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then God said, I've heard the cry of my people Israel. Go bring them out of Egypt. And Moses says, I can't go. I can't speak. And he gave all these excuses. And then he said, But when I go, the people will say, Well, who sent you? What's the name of your God? And Moses responded and said, or God responded to Moses and said, tell them that the I am that I am has sent you. Now we're going through, we're reading through the story with her. And we read that verse where Moses comes up with all of the excuses and then God just says, tell them the I am that I am has sent you. And there's quiet. She just listens. She begins thinking. Finally, she responds and she says, why didn't you show me this verse first? Because if you had showed me this verse first, I wouldn't have asked all of those silly questions. The power in the word. God doesn't always give reasons. He just says, I am that I am. And there is power in that. So there's power in sharing the word. Power in sharing the word. So we want to do preaching, teaching, Bible studies as effectively, evangelism as effectively as it can. All right. Out of the other two, making friends or winning people's confidence, where do you think we are typically the weakest now? Making friends or winning people's confidence? How many of you think making friends? That's, that's kind of where we're weak. All right, what about winning people's confidence? Okay, now it's, it's probably close, but my leaning is more to winning people's confidence, and here's why. Because I think most of us have somebody that we know, maybe a family member, maybe a neighbor, maybe a work colleague, that's, that's not an Adventist, and they're good friends, we're good friends with them, but they're not interested in spiritual things. How do you awaken an interest in spiritual things? How do you win somebody's confidence so that you can begin to share with them the Word of God? And I'll give you an illustration of how we can do this. We had just moved to a new home in Sacramento, and a few houses down from where we were staying, uh, there was a family, Nick and his wife, and uh, their children were, were uh, let's see, they were at Upper High School, and uh, we struck up a friendship. Very secular-minded man, not interested in religion, but a nice guy. So he had a dog, and my kids liked to go over and play with his dog. We, we'd say, Mr. Nick. So we'd drive by the house, we'd see the garage open, we'd say, oh, Mr. Nick's home. We'd often stop, and we'd just sit and visit for a while. Nice family. Anyway, I'd try and bring up some spiritual things from time to time, but then he made it very clear to me that he's not interested in spiritual things. If you bring up anything spiritual, you can kind of just see the look on their face. That big wall goes up. Have you ever experienced that before? They make it very clear, I don't want to hear about God. I'm not interested in God, right? So I began to wonder how we're going to win his confidence so that we can really share spiritual things with him. Now, when it comes to trying to win people's confidence, you want to build a relationship with them until they're willing to share with you a genuine concern that they have, a real need that they have. Remember Christ's method is making friends, 
winning their confidence by ministering to their needs, and then you can share the word. So we want to find out a real need that he has. One day we were visiting, and I said, how's everything going, Nick? And he said, well, it's not going so well. And I said, well, why? What's the matter? He said, well, my daughter, she had just graduated from high school. He said, she's just, her and her friend have just decided to move to Las Vegas. Now, he's a secular-minded man, but he knows Vegas is not the place for an 18-year-old. And he says, we're concerned about that. So I'm looking for a, a concern that he has, a problem that he has. And then I responded and said, well, I can understand the way you feel. I'd probably feel the same way if I was in your situation. But I have found God answers prayer. Now, of course, the minute I said prayer, you know, he's not, you could see, oh, kind of tensed up a little bit. But I wanted to get it out. So I said, but I found God answers prayer. I'm going to pray about that. I'm going to pray about that. I just wanted to plant the seed. I'm going to pray about that. And then, of course, I had to change the conversation because he's not interested in religious things. So how fast does your boat go anyway? He had a big speedboat, so we began to talk about his boat. Well, we went home. I went home that day, and I said, all right, kids, we've got something we're going to pray about. We're going to pray for Mr. Nick. We're going to ask that somehow God would reveal himself through this situation, through this problem. And we began to pray for him. Now, there is power in intercessory prayer. You all understand that, right? Why is intercessory prayer so important when it comes to winning a person's confidence in order for you to share spiritual things? Why is intercessory prayer so important? Well, we've all heard of the great controversy. The great controversy between the forces of good and the forces of evil. In the great controversy, there are certain rules of engagement, you might say. There are certain things that God will not allow Satan to do. They are boundaries. Now, what are some of the things that God will not allow Satan to do against us in the great controversy? Where is Satan's limits? Okay, Satan can't read our thoughts. What else can, can he not do? God won't let him do it. What about physically take our life? Do you think Satan would do that if he could? Would he kill us? Yeah, he sure would. That would be his number one. God won't allow him to do that. What else can Satan not do, even though he wants to do it? He can't possess us. Now, he can if we open up the door, right? But he can't just barge on in. God won't let him do that. So there are certain rules, certain limitations on what Satan can do. Remember the story of Job, where Satan comes up and God says, where did you come from, from walking back and forth on the earth? And God says, have you considered my servant Job? Satan says, yeah, but you just built a hedge of protection around him. There are certain things God will not allow Satan to do. So there are these rules of engagement in the great controversy. Now, because God is fair and God is just, now this is incredible when you think about it, not only is God limited what Satan can do, but God is also abiding by those same rules. In other words, there's things that God will not do as well because of the rules of engagement. If God were to do something to access somebody and influence some, someone, that Satan doesn't have that same ability to access and influence, then Satan will say, unfair, unfair, you're not allowed to do that. Uh, this is not a level playing field, so to speak. So there are certain things that God limits himself and Satan is limited in what he can do. Now the power of intercessory prayer is this. When I pray for somebody else, and I'm interceding on their behalf, that enables God, if you like, 
to break the rules of engagement and do more to try and influence that person than otherwise he would do if we didn't pray for him or pray for that person. And when Satan says, unfair, you're not allowed to do that, you're breaking the rules of engagement, God says, no, I have a legal right to do that because so-and-so is interceding on that person's behalf. Does that make sense? That's why intercessory prayer is so important. It's very powerful. Now, I think it works both ways. Not only does it work when we intercede for others, enabling God to do more, but I think Satan also can bend the rules through people that he's working with. For example, my, my sister was flying in South America somewhere, and while she was on the plane, the plane hit a lot of turbulence, and, you know, it was, I guess it was really bad, and then people were, you know, oh, you know, screaming and so on, and, you know, she's just kind of sitting there holding tight, and she looks across, and there's a lady sitting just a seat. There was an open seat between the two of them, and she was sitting over there, and she had her eyes closed and her hands folded, and uh, I look, she was praying. And so for a while, my sister waited until finally she had finished, and she leaned over and she said, you know what, I'm also a Christian. <laughs> I'm so glad to see somebody else is praying because we could do with prayer right now. And the woman turned to my sister and said, I'm not a Christian. She says, I'm a Satanist. And I'm praying that Satan's will will be done in this situation. <laughs> My sister was like, man, let me really pray. <laughs> she really started to pray. <laughs> so there, believe it or not, Satan has people that he is working through to try and influence even to a greater extent. There's a real war going on out there, right? Real battle. That's why intercessory prayer is so important when it comes to evangelism. That's why we need to pray for people. So we get to know them, we befriend them to the point where they are willing to share with us a real concern that they have, and then we take that to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, please reveal yourself to so-and-so through this situation. So we went back home, we all began to pray for Mr. Nick. A week went by, another week went by, and then I thought, okay, two weeks, that's long enough, let me go back. So I went back to him and I was visiting with him one day, and I said to him, <coughs> say, Nick, <coughs> now remember, he's not interested in religious things. I said, say, Nick, um, How's things going with your daughter? I have been praying about that. And you should have seen the look on his face. He said, hmm. He said, you've been praying about it. I said, I have. Oh, what's happened? He said, well, funny you should say that. Just today we got a call. She said things aren't working out for her in Vegas, and she decided to come home. I said, praise the Lord. You were praying about it, huh? I said, yeah, I did. He says, does God always answer your prayer? I said, yes, he does. Let me tell you how. And we began to talk about spiritual things. We began to awaken an interest. So when it comes to trying to awaken an interest, find out what the problem is, plant the seed, and simply say, I'm going to pray about that. I understand the way you feel. I probably feel the same if I was in your situation. I'm going to pray about that and see what God's going to do. Let a week or two go by, a few days go by, then go back to them and say, you know, I've been praying about this situation. What has happened? What has God done? You'll be amazed at what God will do to try and reach people when we pray for them. Power in intercessory prayer. So that's how we begin to win a person's confidence. They're not going to be interested in what we have to say about God until somehow they begin to realize, well, maybe there is a God. Maybe He does answer prayer. Maybe He's interested in me. And the only way you can really get people to experience that is by praying for them, planting that seed, and then following up. Does that make sense? Is that easy to do? That's very easy to do. All of us can do that, right? 
Find a need, tell the person we're going to pray about that, and then follow up and say, listen, I've been praying about that situation. What has God done? You'll be amazed at what God will do. All right, so these are the three things that we need to do when we look at Christ's example. Also, there's three phases to Christ's ministry. The first is what we call the prepare phase. That's where we have John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. And then Jesus sent out his disciples before him to these different villages to prepare the way. And then at another time, there were 70 others that Jesus sent out to the villages and towns that he was going to go to, and they prepared the way. Then we have the preaching phase, and this is where Jesus went into the cities where the preparation was done, and he preached the word. And then we have the third, which is the preserve phase. So we've got the prepare, the preach, and the preserve. The preserve, that's the early Christian church. The whole book of Acts is a description of how those who responded to uh, Christ's preaching they were brought together and they were preserved. Um, the whole book of Acts deals with this preserved phase. Now, just to emphasize the importance of this preserved phase, too often we think evangelism ends at the baptistry when really only it begins. Uh, baptism is only the start, not the finish line. We invest in people before they baptize, and then when they baptize, we sort of say, well, all right, you're on your own now, good luck, you know. Uh, but it requires a tremendous amount of work after the person has actually made that decision to follow Jesus. That's where discipleship becomes so important. That's where we need to invest in others. The parable that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan, you're all familiar with that story? There was a man traveling from Jerusalem. Where was he going? Down to Jericho. Where is Jericho located geographically? Anyone have an idea? The city of Jericho was close to the Dead Sea. What's significant about the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea? What's its claim to fame? What's significant about the Dead Sea, huh? Okay, no life in the Dead Sea, but I mean geographically, what's significant about the Dead Sea? It's the lowest place on the planet. Uh, Jerusalem is where? I mean, geographically. Is it in a valley? Is Jerusalem in a valley? No, where is it? It's on a mountain, right? Mount Zion or Mount Moriah, okay, a mountain. So here is a man traveling from up here, and he's going down here. That's kind of interesting. The man's going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And on the way, he gets attacked by these thieves. What did the thieves do to the man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho? You've got to think now a little bit. What did they do to the man? What did they do to his clothes? What did the thieves do to his clothes? They took it. They stripped him of his raiment. So the Bible says they did. And what did they do to him? Well, they beat the man. And in what condition did they leave the man? Half dead. So they took his clothes, they beat him, and they left him half dead. And then you have the priest that comes walking by. And the priest comes and he looks, but then he just keeps going. And then you have the Levite that comes along and he looks and he just keeps going. And then you have the Samaritan that comes. Samaritan comes by, and when he sees the man, Jesus says, the Samaritan has compassion upon him. So what's the motivation? Not selfishness, but compassion. So the man has compassion. He comes over to the one who had fallen amongst the thieves, and he binds up his wounds, very interesting, and he pours into his wounds oil and wine. Now, what is oil a symbol of? Oil is a symbol of healing, but spiritually, what does oil represent? The Holy Spirit. What does wine represent? The blood of Christ. Notice that he pours in oil and wine to help the man with his wounds. He must have clothed him with his own cloak because the thieves stripped him of his raiment. 
put him on a donkey and took him to an inn. And then the Good Samaritan said to the innkeeper, hey, you take care of this man. Here is some money. And if you spend anything more on his care, I will repay you when I come again. So the Good Samaritan takes the man, places him in the inn, and then he tells the innkeeper, I'm going to go, but then I'm going to come back. Right? And then I will pay you if you spend anything extra other than what I've already given you. Now, in this parable, who does the Good Samaritan represent? Pretty obvious. It's Jesus, right? Who does the man represent that fell amongst the thieves? The human race, those who are lost. We've all fallen amongst thieves. Who does the, who's the master thief? Satan himself. When did humanity fall prey to Satan's lies? Way back in the Garden of Eden. And the wages of sin is what? Death. So the devil left mankind half dead. For the wages of sin is death. The thief stripped the man of his raiment. What does clothes represent in the Bible? Righteousness. Okay? Stripped the man of his clothes. Now, in the parable, who do you think the priest might represent that comes along, but that can't help the man or doesn't help the man and just keeps going? What was the priest's job? What was his function? What was his work? What was the priest to do back in Israel? He was connected with what? Connected with God. But what kind of work did he do for Israel? He was connected with the sanctuary and the sacrifices. Now, the shedding of blood of animals back in Old Testament times, could that really take care of the sin problem? No, it couldn't. It was just a type of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would come take away the sins of the world. So the priest could represent the Old Testament um, ceremonial services or the sacrificial system. Now, who does the Levite represent? Out of the 12 tribes, what was different or special about the Levites? Okay, they were connected with the sanctuary, but the Levite, in relation to the rest of the tribes, how were they different? Okay, they were, they were especially set aside for what? They were connected with the sanctuary services. So here is a group that was especially chosen by God for a specific reason. What nation did God set aside and especially choose for a specific purpose and reason? It was the Jews as a whole. The Levites' responsibility was to teach Israel the law. What nation's responsibility was to teach the world the law? Israel. Does that make sense? So the priest represents the sacrificial system. The Levite represents the nation of Israel. Did the Levite help the man? No, he couldn't. Israel as a nation couldn't cure the problem of sin. They needed the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, of course, is Jesus. And Jesus comes. He has compassion. Why did he leave the glories of heaven and come to the sin-polluted earth? Because he had compassion upon us. And how does he minister to our needs? Through the Holy Spirit and through his atoning sacrifice, through the oil and through the wine. He covers us with his own robe of righteousness. Now, here's the interesting point. Where does Jesus take those who have responded to his sacrifice, who have received the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is beginning to work within them, where does Jesus take people who have responded to his grace? Where does he put them? In the church. So in the parable, who's the innkeeper? The church. And has God given 
members of the church, talents and abilities. Has he given us gifts? Yes, he has. And what has God said we ought to do with his gifts? Take care of the people that I bring to you. Utilize your talents and your gifts to disciple people, to minister to people. And if you spend anything that I have not already given you, I will repay you when I come again. Does that make sense? So that parable really not only tells us about Christ and His work in our salvation, but it also tells us what Christ wants us to do. Minister to those who have responded to His grace. And that's why this preserving phase is so important. This discipling of new believers is central to the mission and the work that God has given us to do. Okay, so here we go. We've got the personal preparation. That's personal work. We have ministering to people, winning their confidence. We have sharing the word. That's the public presentation, Bible studies or public evangelism. And then we have the nurturing of the new believers. That's discipleship. All of these different points are important when it comes to evangelism. Everyone is very, very important. Okay. Now, think of a harvest cycle, because Jesus would often use things in nature to illustrate spiritual truths. And for imag imagine for a moment a farmer who decides to grow wheat. And so he goes and he plows up his soil and he fertilizes it and he waits for the wheat to grow, but nothing grows. And he can't figure this out. And so he goes to his farmer friends and he says, you know what, I don't know why the wheat's not growing in my field. And so they say to him, well, what kind of fertilizer did you use? And he tells them. And they say, did you check the pH balance of the soil? He says, yes. What is it? And he tells them, oh, that's good. Boy, they can't figure out why his wheat's not growing. So one day they all go out to his farm, and they're walking around. And uh, finally one of his friends says to him, say, what kind of seed did you plant anyway? Well, with that, our farmer friend looks down, and he kicks a clod of dirt, and he says, well, you know what? I, I hope for wheat. I, I pray for wheat. But I guess I didn't plant any seeds. Now, of course, that's not a true story. There isn't a farmer alive who'd expect to reap a harvest without first planting the seed. But in Adventism, we hope for a harvest. We pray for a harvest. We prepare our evangelistic series. We hope people will come. And when no one comes, we're bitterly disappointed and we think, well, evangelism doesn't work anymore. What's the reason? We didn't plant any seeds. Does that make sense? You can't expect a harvest without first planting the seed. That's Christ's method. So, in nature, there are parallels for spiritual things. There are six phases in the evangelism cycle. Each are equally important. The personal preparation, preparing the soil, sowing the seed, cultivating, harvesting, and then preserving the harvest. Each phase is important when it comes to evangelism. Now, we're going to go through each of these phases one by one, and you'll see the practical application of this and how you can actually go back to your home church and start implementing this. Now, let me just add one other thing. Don't wait for everybody in your church to get on board before you start. It's never going to happen. You're never going to get 100% participation. And the good news is you don't need to get 100% participation. All you need to do is gather together a like-minded group of people and say, okay, let's do what God has asked us to do. Just start. Just start. Just go through the cycle of evangelism and see what God will do. Miracles will take place. Okay, the first phase is personal preparation. All right, we spoke a little bit about this. I'm going to move on here. Personal preparation. 
What does this involve? This is revival, prayer, planning, training programs, developing a church mission centered around the gospel commission. So it starts with us. You know, when Jesus was about to ascend, he said to his disciples, go preach the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, baptizing them, teaching them to do everything that I've told you. And so here this group of people are given this great commission to take the gospel to the whole world. Where do they start? Do they immediately run out there and start preaching? Is that what happens? Where did the disciples go after the ascension of Jesus? They went to Jerusalem. They gathered together in the upper room. They began to pray. They said, Lord, we can't do this on our own. Unless you do something for us, we'll never be able to accomplish the mission. That's where it begins. So you gather together with a group of like-minded people in your church, and you say, you know what? I believe that God has souls out there in this town, in our city, that need to hear the gospel. And Lord, we committed to finding them but we need your help. Please help us. Give us of your spirit. Give us wisdom. Give us strength. Give us courage. Give us the ability to do the work you're calling us to do. That's where it starts. There was a little church not too far from Sacramento. Um, they contacted us one day at Amazing Facts, and they said, you know what? We need help. And so I went over to the church. This is several years ago. And um, on arriving at the church, I realized, yeah, this church needs help. Uh, there was a nice facility, but the congregation consisted of about 15 people. And the youngest person in the congregation was 70. <laughs> so you can imagine the problem they were in. Uh, and, and the saints were dying off. And there was no families, no kids, just a group of old people there at that church. And they began to realize, man, if we don't do something, the church is going to have to close its doors. And there was a godly man in that church. I mean, they were all godly, but there was, there was an elder in the church in particular, an old man who f came to the conclusion that the work God had for that church was not over. And so he gathered together with the church members, and he said to them, let's pray and ask God to help us, because we need help. And we all, we can't do everything we want to do. We need God's help. So they started to pray started to pray every day. This group of, of folks started to pray. They said, Lord, we believe there's still people in this community that you want to reach. They contacted us and they said, listen, we, we're serious about evangelism. We, we, we want to do something. We need your help. And they started to pray, started to pray. There was a spirit of revival that began to awaken within the hearts of these members. And they began to say, well, what can we do? We're old. What can we do? And they had some good cooks in the congregation. They said, well, you know, we could put on some really great, healthy cooking schools. And so they began to advertise in the community about their cooking program, and they started up their cooking school. They started ministering to the needs of the, congregation, of, of the community as much as they could. And then they brought us in, and we brought in a Bible worker, and we started doing some seed planting in the community, and we did an evangelistic series, and we began to baptize people, and some families came in, and then we did another evangelistic meeting. We baptized some more people, and then their friends came, and eventually the church. Today, if you were to go to the Colfax Church, you'd have to come early in order to get a seat. They have all of the children's departments are full. They have a Pathfinder Club that's vibrant, filled with new Adventists, all because the church didn't give up. They started with prayer and revival. They got serious about the work that God called them to do. That's where it begins, right? Uh, training is great. Training's like boot camp. You go to boot camp, you know, if you're a soldier, you go to boot camp, you learn how to use your weapon and, you know, how to follow commands and all the rest of this. But 
No army has ever won a battle by simply remaining in boot camp. At some point in time, you have to engage the enemy. You have to actually get out there and do something. Now, don't wait to think that you have to have everything just perfectly lined up before you start. You're never going to get everybody on board. Just start. Gather together with a group of people and say, let's set up the evangelism cycle, even if it's just four of us. Let's do it. Let's see what God can do through us and get started. So this is the first phase. Now, um, just like a garden, so it is with evangelism. Now, when you're planting tomatoes, for example, you're growing tomatoes, you're looking for certain harvest indicators to know what you need to do next. Let's say, do we have any gardeners here? We've got, we got, we got one, right? We've got a gardener. I'm not a great gardener, but I like gardening. Uh, let's say you're growing tomatoes. You probably don't even have to be a gardener to answer this question. But if you come out and you look at your tomato plants, and one day the leaves are just kind of hanging like this, you know, what does that tell you the plant needs? It needs water, so you water it. You come out another day and you look at your tomato plant and the coloring on the leaves just doesn't look right. That's a little yellow. What does that tell you? Uh, maybe it needs some sun, maybe it needs some fertilizer, okay? And one day you come out and you look at the tomato plant and it's got these red, soft tomatoes hanging on the vine. What do you have to do now? Well, before you eat them, you got to pick them, right? What happens if you don't pick the tomato? It'll fall to the ground, it'll go bad. So by looking at the plant, you can then make wise decisions as to what the next step is. So it is in the harvest or the, the, the evangelism cycle. You, you look at these different phases and you have harvest indicators that you look for. And when you see these harvest indicators, then you're ready to move on to the next phase of the cycle. So what are the harvest indicators for this first phase? The spirituality and the practical Christian experience of the individuals within the church, unity of the church family. You're never going to have everybody united, but you need to have a group that's committed to the mission that God has called you to do. So the focus then is the mission of the church family is focused upon reaching others with the gospel. That's what you're looking for. So you find a group of like-minded people who are committed to sharing the gospel. That's what you're looking for in this first phase. All right, then we go to phase number two. That's preparing the soil. That's friendship evangelism, your community service programs, community seminars, smoking, cooking schools, stress. There's no end of what you can do to reach out into the community, and you begin to advertise for Bible studies. And there's a number of ways that you can do that. So you begin to develop friendship, friendships, friendship evangelism. The harvest indicator in this phase is the number of positive relationships between the church and the community. So how many non-Adventists do you know? How many people are you praying for in the community? Are you aware of the needs of your co-workers or your neighbors? Are you praying for them? Are you asking God somehow to reveal himself to them? That's the question you want to ask. The number of positive relationships between the members and non-members of the church. So that's what you're looking for. Build some relationships with those non-Adventists out there in the community. Then we're ready for the next phase, which is planting of the seed. This is where we begin our personal testimony. Now, when we say personal testimony, this is what I mean by that. Simply this. Say, I've been praying about that situation. Has God done anything? That's a personal testimony. I've been praying for you about that situation. Has God done anything? Allowing God to reveal himself to individuals. Remember the example I just gave you about my neighbor? Uh, raising the question, praying for them and then following up. That's part of your personal testimony, just to get them thinking. 
to see what God is doing, revealing Himself. That will lead to Bible studies, drop-off Bible studies, video Bible studies, personal Bible studies, small group Bible studies. There's literature distribution, follow-up on Christian radio and TV contacts. All of this is part of this phase of Bible studies. What's emphasized in this phase is Bible studies. There is power in the Word. So you want to get people into studying the Word. Study the Bible. That's the key. Okay, <clears throat> the harvest indicator for this phase is the amount of direct spiritual outreach by the church towards the community. What's happening to meet the needs and win people's confidence in the community? Then we have phase four, and that is cultivating for the harvest. This is where the Bible studies continue. You can transition them to your home or maybe to a neutral place, and you conduct the short bridging events in your church. That's different types of seminars, music programs, small group Bible studies, etc. Again, just trying to build relationships with people. Now, I mentioned to you earlier that church that was just about ready to close their doors because all of the people were you know, dying out. Uh, they said, we have to do something. And they so, so they started a cooking school. And they began to advertise in the community. And they began to get people coming. They were interested in health. And so they started coming. And then they asked if I would do the evangelistic series. They were preparing for an evangelistic series. And so we sent out all of these handbills to everybody in town, and we invited them to come to our evangelistic series. Well, the day came for our evangelistic series, and I got up to preach. And you know what? Guess how many people came from the handbills for this evangelistic series? Zero. <laughs> it was a Jehovah Witness town. Yeah, that was the predominant religion in this town with Jehovah's Witness. And, of course, they wouldn't come to anything that's not their own. So nobody came. But the good news was this. Because of the cooking schools and the community seminars that the church was doing for the community, they had built relationships with people. And in the cooking program, they advertised our Bible seminar, our Bible prophecy seminar, and they encouraged people to come. The church members invited people to come as their guests to the evangelistic series. So we had a pretty good group of non-Adventists there opening out of the evangelistic meeting, not based upon handbills, but based upon the outreach that had taken place. And we had a good evangelistic meeting, and we had some real solid baptisms that came in as a result of that meeting, and then others came. And the whole program just kept growing and growing and growing. So uh, this is very important, building these kind of relationships with people that you can bring to the evangelistic series. Harvest indicator for the fourth phase, that is the number of consistent in-home personal Bible studies that are being given. The more people receiving Bible studies before you do your evangelistic series, the greater will be the response. So you want as many Bible studies in the community as possible. The number of people attending the church's bridging events or seminars, it's also important. Then it comes to phase five. This is one of my favorite parts. This is the public evangelistic seminar. Strong messages where you appeal for decisions. That's the public evangelistic seminar at the church. If you can't have a live evangelist, you can always do any video evangelistic seminar at the church, but obviously a live evangelist is always preferable. You can do revival meetings at the church. If people don't come to the evangelistic meeting, you want to continue those Bible studies and begin making appeals for people to accept the truths that they've heard. Now, there is power in the preaching of the Word. We'll talk about that later on, the power of preaching. Why is that so important? We'll get to that. Okay, what is your harvest indicator for this phase? Get a crowd. The number of non-members attending the public seminar. The more non-Avenists you have coming to your evangelistic seminar, the more effective this opening would be, this harvest indicator. You want to get as many non-Avenists coming. 
Uh, the way I see it is it's really the church's responsibility to get as many people to the evangelistic meeting as possible, and then it's the evangelist and the Holy Spirit's responsibility to get people to make decisions. Our job is to get the people there. Just bring the people to hear the Word of God. There is power in the preaching of the Word. And then phase six, that is preserving the harvest, spiritual weekly study opportunities, including a deeper truth and Christian experience. We have something called spiritual mentors. So that's where we make sure that the people are grounded in the truth and that they're growing spiritually after the evangelistic series is over, that they're growing. And, and probably one of the most effective ways to do that is small groups gathering together in people's homes, studying the Word together. Now, several years ago, small groups used to be the in thing. Maybe you remember this. It seemed like everybody was doing small groups. All the churches had small groups. It was just, we all got to do it. But that kind of petered out. And part of the reason for that was uh, my church really got involved in small groups. We had all kinds of small groups. The challenge with that is, you know, people don't want to commit for the rest of their life every Tuesday evening to going to a small group. They've got things coming and going. So what I suggest when it comes to small groups, always plan a starting point and an ending point to your small group. I usually work on a quarterly basis, so 13 weeks in all. Actually, 12 weeks, but there's one week that you can, you can cancel at any point in time if something comes up. So always have a starting point, always have an ending point. And then when you invite people to come to the small group, you tell them, we're going to be doing this for the next 12 weeks. This is what we're going to be studying together. Have some focus for the small group. This is what we want to accomplish. We're going to be studying the book of Daniel together. Why don't we get together on a Thursday night to do this? So there's an end, there's an end goal. So once you've gone through those 13 weeks and you've finished the series, then you can tell the people, well, we're done. We can take a break, or if you want, we can go for another 13 weeks together. But that gives people an opportunity to decide to keep going or to take a break without feeling guilty. So always have a starting point and an ending point when it comes to your small groups. I found that to be very effective and helpful. Okay, the harvest indicator for this phase, preserving the harvest, that's the practical Christian experience of the new believers. Continued opportunities for studying God's Word. So that's, you want to see them grow. You want genuine conversion to be taking place. We'll talk about that later on this afternoon as well. Now, You've probably heard this before. We often hear the question asked, why doesn't evangelism, or evangelism doesn't work? Why are the results so often so small when it comes to evangelism? You've probably heard people saying evangelism doesn't work. Maybe you've heard people say this. We've tried evangelism, but the people just come in the front door and they go out of the back door. Have you ever heard that before? Oh, we baptized 10 people. Well, where are they? Oh, I don't know. They're gone. You know, you're down the line, they're gone. Why do you think that, that happens, by the way? Why does this happen? What part of the cycle of evangelism are we neglecting? The preserving the harvest, the discipleship component. That's why this happens. Uh, sometimes you hear people say, well, we spend all kinds of money and no one was baptized. Have you heard that as an excuse not to do evangelism? It costs too much money. We spend all this money and, you know, no one's baptized. So these are the reasons why people give, why evangelism sometimes does not work. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 says, But this I say, he which sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. So there's a principle here. In Galatians chapter 6, 7, we read, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that he shall also reap. Now that's true of an individual, but I think that's also true of the church. 
we reap what we sow. So if we don't sow for the harvest, we're not going to experience an abundant harvest. Now, this is what I find so interesting. In the early days of Adventism, did you know that the Seventh-day Adventist Church was the fastest growing Protestant denomination? It was growing so rapidly that all kinds of groups were studying the Adventists to try and figure out what the secret was to growth. One group in particular that was interested in the early Adventist movement was the Seventh-day Baptists. Now, why do you think the Seventh-day Baptists were interested in why the Adventists were growing so rapidly? Who was first, the Seventh-day Adventists or the Seventh-day Baptists? Seventh-day Baptists were first. Matter of fact, Rachel Oaks, she heard about the Sabbath because of her connection with the Seventh-day Baptists, and she introduced that to the Adventists, if you remember Adventist history. So the Seventh-day Baptists were looking at the Adventists, and they're going, man, these guys are growing so rapidly, and we just kind of stuck. They weren't really growing. So they began to study to figure out why the Adventists were growing so quickly. They were both keeping the Sabbath. So they were trying to figure out what was the secret to the Adventist growth. It was growing so quickly. And this is the conclusion that they reached. I'm going to share with you a couple of statements here. This comes from uh, a report that was done by the Seventh-day Baptists. It was published in 1897. Uh, this report by the Seventh-day Baptists on Adventists. What is the secret of their success? Why were they growing so rapidly? And this is what they found. All Seventh-day Adventist clergymen are missionaries. They are not located pastors. They are busy teaching, preaching, and organizing churches. That was their conclusion. Why is the Adventist growing so fast? Because the clergymen, they're not located pastors but they're busy teaching, preaching, and organizing church. In other words, the pastors were evangelists. And the church was taught to take care of itself. So the paid pastoral staff, you didn't see the pastor very often because he was out planting churches. He was out doing evangelism. And the church was taught to take care of itself. Here is an interview with Elder Starr, who was a leading Adventist back in 1886, this was by an Indiana newspaper. Again, they were wanting to know why were the Adventists growing so rapidly. And this is what he had to say. In the first place, we have no settled pastors. Our churches are taught largely to take care of themselves, while nearly all of our ministers work as evangelists in new fields. <laughs> you see what they're saying? They're saying the reason we're growing so rapidly is because our church members are taking care of the church, freeing up our ministers to go plant churches, to go do evangelism. In the winter, they go out into the churches, halls, and schoolhouses, raise up believers. In the summer, we use tents pitched in cities and villages where we teach the people the, these doctrines. This summer, we will run 100 evangelistic meetings throughout the United States of America in tents. This was 1886. They're doing 100 evangelistic meetings in tents. That's about what we do now. <laughs> Not quite, but <laughs> so we could see why the church is growing so rapidly. They were doing a lot of evangelism. <clears throat> now, here's an interesting statement by A.G. Daniels. A.G. Daniels was the general conference president in the early 1900s. Notice the statement in 1912. A little bit of history that's interesting. Um, Ellen White was over in Australia. A.G. Daniels was general conference president. And she began writing letters from Australia to the general conference, to the church, she kept saying, we need to do evangelism. She wrote to the leaders of the Adventist church, A.G. Daniel, Daniels and others, and said, you need to do evangelism. You need to go out there and do evangelistic meetings. So Daniels tried to do this, 
he did a few evangelistic meetings, but all of his administrative responsibilities sort of came in on him, and so he kind of set evangelism to the side, and he went about doing administrative things. But Ellen White kept saying, you need to do evangelism. You guys need to do evangelism. Well, finally she gets back, and she settles in California. This is coming back after uh, Australia in 1900. She settled in California. A.G. Daniels, now the General Conference is out on the East Coast by now, close to Washington, D.C., so A.G. Daniels is out on the West Coast, and he's got some speaking uh, engagements in California, and he's near where Ellen White lives in Elmshaven. He thinks, well, I'm going to stop by and visit Ellen White, because they were good friends. So he goes up to her house, and he knocks on the door. And her attendant comes and opens the door, and she says, oh, hello, uh, Elder Daniels. And uh, Daniel says, uh, could I please see Mrs. White, Sister White? And the attendant says, well, just wait a minute. Let me go get her. And so the attendant goes up to call Ellen White, and A.G. Daniels waits and waits and waits, and finally she comes back, the attendant comes back, somewhat embarrassed. And she says, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Elder Daniels, but Ellen White won't see you. And Daniels is kind of surprised, and he says, well, what, what do you mean she won't see me? I've come all the way to see her. And the attendant says, no, she did have a message for you. And the message is this, she's not going to see you until you do what God has told you to do. <laughs> so Daniels had to pick up his bag and leave without seeing Ellen White. He later wrote that it was one of the longest train rides he ever had from California back to Washington. And the whole way he began to think, man, what am I going to do? So he gets back to Washington. He writes a letter to Ellen White and he says, do you need me? Do you want me to resign as general conference president? She writes back and she says, no, don't resign, but do what God is telling you to do. Do evangelism. So then he takes it very seriously. So he clears his schedule, and he starts doing regular evangelistic meetings, starts traveling from place to place, doing evangelistic meetings. Some occasions, he baptizes five. Other occasions, he baptizes 50. Some occasions, he doesn't baptize anyone, but he does evangelism. He just starts preaching, 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 all over the place. And because the general conference was so passionate about evangelism, was caught on by the churches and by the lay people and by the ministers, and people started doing evangelism evangelism started growing. Now, with that in mind, notice the date when this statement was made. This is 1912. So this is after that experience with Ellen White that I just mentioned. The question is asked, why is the Adventist church growing so rapidly? And this is his conclusion. He says, from the beginning of our work, we have recognized a very important division of the work for our ministers. We have not settled our ministers over churches as pastors to any large extent. I hope this will never cease to be the order of affairs in this denomination. For when we cease our forward movement and we settle over our churches and stay by them and do their thinking and praying in their work, then our churches will begin to weaken and lose their life and spirit and they'll become paralyzed, fossilized, and the work will be weakened. Almost prophetic, right? He says, if we cease our forward motion, if we stop doing evangelism, we're going to, be going, we're going to become weak, paralyzed, and while well, the work will be weakened, we'll become paralyzed and fossilized. What's another word for a church that is in a condition of paralysis? A condition, what's fossilized mean? Something that's fossilized is what? Dead. So what would you call a church that is in a paralyzed or fossilized or a dead condition? What would you call that church in biblical terms? I'll give you a clue. Revelation chapter 3. <laughs> Laodicea, a church that is in a lukewarm condition. 
A.G. Daniels tells us why we are in a lukewarm condition. Because he says if we cease our forward movement, we'll become paralyzed, we'll become fossilized, we'll become lukewarm. So the reason the church is in the condition that it is now, to a large degree, is because of a lack of focus. We're not doing the work God has asked us to do. And I've seen that with my own churches that I've pastored. Um, I'm very passionate about evangelism. And so I've made sure that our churches, my churches, are always engaged in evangelism. But there have been times where we've gotten so busy with other things that we haven't done evangelism. We've let one year pass without doing a full-blown evangelistic series. And you know what? I can tell the difference in my church. There's more squabbling. Uh, there is a lack of commitment. We can't get people to do anything. Why? Because we lose our focus. We lose that forward, forward momentum. That's why evangelism is so important. We need evangelism. Individually, we need evangelism. The church needs it, but we need it as Christians as well. Very important. What was Ellen White's view? Manuscript, this is 1901. Notice the date. She just came back from Australia. As I traveled through the south on my way to the conference, I saw city after city that was unworked. What is the matter, she says. Now, of course, this could also apply to any city, even here in Canada. What is the matter, she says. Here's the answer. The ministers are hovering over the churches which know the truth while thousands are perishing outside of Christ. How true is that statement today? Is that statement still true today? Are the pastors hovering over the churches? <laughs> yes, they are. Are people perishing without a knowledge of Christ? Absolutely. Now look what else she says. She says, if the proper instruction was given... If the proper methods were followed, that's Christ's method, every church member would do his work as a member of the body. He would do Christian missionary work. So she had the same passion. We've got to do evangelism, she said. We've got to do something. We've got to share the gospel with the world. We need that. Three reasons why evangelism doesn't work. Number one, we don't plant enough seeds, so we reap what we sow. We don't prepare for the harvest. That's the first. Don't plant enough seeds. Think of the funnel mentality. Here you have a funnel. This is the wide part, the mouth of the funnel. <clears throat> These are the individuals that the church is ministering to, the people in the community. Um, this is those people who are coming to our cooking schools and our health seminars and all of those kind of things. Over here, these are the people here that actually are receiving Bible studies. Uh, down here, these are the people that actually attend our evangelistic series. And down here, here are the people who actually make decisions. So if you want to see a lot of decisions happening down here at the end of the evangelistic series, we need to have a big mouth on the top of the funnel. Does that make sense? You need to have a lot of contacts, a lot of people that you're praying for, a lot of people that you're working with, and you need to be proactive in trying to move them down from just acquaintances to awaken a spiritual interest, to getting Bible studies, to actually inviting them to the evangelistic series until finally they end up making decisions for the truth and follow God's leading. Reason number two why evangelism sometimes does not work we forget that the seed is in the harvest, so we take a break from evangelism instead of continuing the cycle, letting success grow. So we do a big evangelistic series, and then we go, Whew, that was a lot of work, let's take a break for a while. Well, yeah, you need to take a short break, but don't wait forever. You need to get right back into it because there are interests that are developed, 
that need to be followed up on. Not everybody's going to make a decision in that evangelistic series. We're doing a meeting once in a church, and we had a guy show up, and uh, at the end of the evangelistic meeting, we handed out cards. One of the questions on the card was, what is your religious affiliation? You know, have you accepted Jesus and so on? What is your religious affiliation? I mean, he wrote there in big, bold letters, the Holy Roman Catholic Church. And then he wrote in parentheses, I will always be a Catholic. We said, oh, well, we know where he stands. <laughs> and so that meeting was over. We did another meeting about six months later on, and he showed up again. He went through the whole series to all the meetings. At the end, we handed out the cards, and on the bottom of his card, under religious affiliation, he wrote Catholic. I thought, okay. We did another evangelistic meeting the following year, and guess who showed up? Same guy. He went through all the meetings. At the end of that evangelistic meeting, he wrote down on the card, Catholic, but thinking about becoming an Adventist. <laughs> it took three evangelistic series. So if we do evangelism and then we quit, there might be people who are being convicted, right? And then you hear it again, or maybe they need to hear it again. There is that window of opportunity where people are being convicted, and if we don't follow up with that, often that interest begins to wane. They lose interest. So we need to be aware of this as we do evangelism. All right, wrapping up here. Reason number three, we have weak, disjointed links in the evangelism cycle. You've heard the saying, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So every part of this evangelism cycle is important if we're going to have effective evangelism. The cycle of evangelism shows us evangelism isn't just an event or a process, but it's a cycle. It's something ongoing that we just do. We just do it as a church, as a youth group. You don't have to get the whole church on board. Just as a youth group, say, hey, let's do the evangelism cycle every year. Let's do it. Let's just set up and keep it going. How often should the cycle of evangelism repeat? Think of a garden. You have small harvests along the way and one big harvest once a year. So you plan a 12-month calendar, a cycle but include a harvest every six months. So a revival maybe, a weekend revival every six months, but plan a full evangelistic series at least once a year. And you know what? You preach the evangelistic series. You can't get it, you do it. Just do it. Somebody has to do it. Just preach an evangelistic series. See what God will do. Okay. So I have a major evangelistic seminar once a year, a mini little revival maybe every six months. So we've looked at the corporal cycle of evangelism. Also, we need to recognize that there is an individual cycle. Different plants ripen for harvest at different rates. You've got lettuce, pumpkins, tomatoes, strawberries, redwood trees. They all grow differently. They ripen differently. So recognize that as you're working with people, people are growing at different rates. Uh, here's the point. Recognize that as you go through the corporate cycle, that's what the church does, that you will be working with people at different stages. Give them room to grow. Allow people to grow and you've got to repeat the cycle. Keep the cycle repeating as frequent intervals in order to harvest people as they become ready. In summary then, Christ's method, friendship that wins confidence and then you share the word and you keep that cycle going. Jesus gives an example of prepare, preach and preserve. Sharing God's word is like planting a garden. It must repeat to be successful. An evangelism cycle is the best plan for evangelism. It follows God's instruction for seed sowing. It builds success from year to year because the seed is in the harvest. So you want to keep that cycle going. Final verse here. Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, also to eight, for thou knoweth not what evil shall come upon the earth. In Bible prophecy, what does this represent? What does bread represent? The Word of God. Man shall not live by... Bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What does this represent? 
What does water represent? Multitudes, nation, and kindreds, and tongues. Revelation 17, 15. So, we've been told to preach the word to as many people as we can. We don't know what will prosper. We don't know what the results will be. We're just called to be faithful in sharing the word. Share the word. Let God do the work. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you that you've called all of us to be involved in this great work of seeking and saving the lost. Lord, I pray that you'd give us wisdom so that we can effectively do this. We know that there are many in our communities upon whom the Holy Spirit is working. Father, we want to find them and we want to share truth with them and we want to see their lives change. We need to do evangelism for our own spiritual growth. And so bless us to this end, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.